I used to watch Game of Thrones. Then I realized it was endangering my immortal soul. Game of Thrones is unquestionably the most acclaimed and beloved show on television. But HBO's hit fantasy series, which returns for a seventh season this Sunday, is not a drama for adults. It's not even a soap opera. It is ultra-violent wizard porn, and boring ultra-violent wizard porn at that. Two decades ago, watching it would have gotten you shoved into a lock. This is episode 18. This is Zeb. This is Mark. This is Jonathan. This is Matthew. Yes, and tonight we have Matthew Walther on with us, writer for The Week and many other publications and interesting articles. And tonight we wanted to talk to Matthew about his recent article about Game of Thrones. Thanks for having me. So this was a really fun article to read and also uh, a refreshing one, something I've been wanting to see for a long time. Can you tell us what... Uh, what drove you to write this and what you wanted to get at really at the core of it? Sure. So for a few years, I guess, since the show first came out, I had been watching Game of Thrones uh, first with some friends in school and then with my wife. And uh, last year, I guess, during the most recent season, it just kind of hit me during the second to last episode that that this was not good, that what I had been watching was disgusting and degrading and probably bad for me and that I should probably stop, that I you know, could not believe that I had dumped years of my life into caring whether the dwarf brother of the incestuous couple teams up with the dragon queen who was raped by her husband to come up with an army and defeat, you know, the snow people. <laughs> just not it's just not worth anybody's time it's uh -huh. it's gross and silly you what, what you're watching it for are like the up close evisceration and the brothel scenes like that's the content that keeps people coming back to the show but because it's dressed up as like this adult political intrigue thriller or whatever you can kind of excuse it, it's the, the reading playboy for the articles kind of thing you can kind of say, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm reading it for, I'm, I'm enjoying it for the election, the intellectual content. And these sorts of things are kind of ancillary to that or help, you know, get the plot going forward, which is interesting because a lot of the people that I know who really like it, um, if I were to ask them what their feelings about watching porn were, they'd be like, yeah, that's fine. I watch porn all the time. But with Game of Thrones, they really feel the need to deny that's what they're there for. And that I don't really, I don't know why other than sort of the, nerdish loyalty to certain uh entertainment you consume i can't imagine what other reason there would be to really deny the the thrill of watching it well i would guess that you know back in the day when people were into actual wizard porn like the 80s dungeons and dragons manuals with like the busty elf maidens and stuff the kids who like that probably also read Playboy, not for the articles. <laughs> so I don't think it's 
I don't think there has to be a hard and fast distinction. I think you can just like you can uh, have a whiskey straight up or you can, uh, you know, have a little rum and coke or whatever. They like their porn straight or cut with wizards mm-hmm. or both. <laughs> uh-huh. Did you get more pushback from nerds who are mad that you insulted their show or from the massive um, fan base that thinks that they're not nerds getting mad that you were calling them all nerds for watching the show? Um, That's tough. I would say that I saw more of the criticism from the latter group. Uh-huh. Um, I, che- I checked in on Reddit and I saw, I don't know, <laughs> 17,000 comments or whatever. And the thing is, is that I could stop reading after six of them because there were really only six comments, you know, multiplied by however many thousand it was. Has this guy ever read about something they called War of the Rose. Mm. (laughs) Why is this guy trying to tell us what we can like? Doesn't this guy realize that a lot of people get killed in the Bible too? (laughs) Right. And the thing was, is that other than noting the fact that that they weren't nerds, the non-nerd criticism of it was almost identical. Oh, yeah. Which I think says a lot about how mainstream nerd kind of mm. nerd culture and nerdy forms of argumentation have come in our society. I want to push back a little there in that I think you've got a good point about commodity fetishism and kind of the kind of defensiveness about the show. But I think there's there's a sense in which we can overuse this if we will say, I mean, you're, you're right in saying that kind of Game of Thrones is a kind of ubiquitous kind of cultural form and that um, the defensiveness is tied with that kind of liberal commodity fetishism. But to say that that's kind of about nerd culture at that point kind of seems like stretching the boundary. And that kind of important thing about nerd culture is like normally been anyway, um, that it's not mainstream. That it's kind of unusual. And maybe that we're seeing something different now. Um, but I think that, that I think I think that it, I think there's a confusion there and that you might be right that nerd culture is a particular manifestation of commodity fetishism, but that commodity fetishism is a, a widespread, it, it's just part of culture generally means that there's a kind of confusion there that's possible, but I'm not sure exactly where that goes. It's an interesting thing in how the meaning of what nerd is has changed in the last 30 or so years in that the entertainment industry has managed to commodify it in a way that it hadn't been before. I mean, back in the 80s, I played D&D and I played video games and I had comic books. So I was a nerd back then, but back then there wasn't a lot for nerds to buy. You know, we'd buy a couple of D&D books and then make up our own mm-hmm. uh, supplementary stuff and adventures. And also we would graduate from that stuff. We'd stop being nerdy about superheroes and Dungeons and Dragons and become nerdy about literature or uh, history, science, you know, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> liturgy and church politics. Um <laughs> So what was a nerd was really just a proto-intellectual back then who had um, sort of unusual taste. And you could get beaten up as much for carrying around a copy of the complete lyrics of Bob Dylan or Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time as for a Spider-Man comic book or a D&D instruction book. But now Hollywood has turned the whole thing into a massive industry and mainstreamed it so that they can... Um, make it make being a nerd something you have to spend a lot of money on like you you create your identity like matthew said by buying all the stuff by going to the huge con and uh buying the the merch getting the autograph and the picture taken and all that 
or just by having your subscription to HBO and watching every Sunday night and then talking about it on Twitter. This is true, but also it's interesting in, in watching how this kind of pushes in new ways. This isn't something that I'm really clued up on, but I've noticed you see a lot of online comic artists who are writing and putting out these comics basically for free, basically for nothing. Um, and these are original comics, all new. And there's a small, it, there's a small culture of it. Um, and this seems to be kind of a descendant of that kind of culture, but it's obviously doing something in a, it's obviously not commodified in quite the same way. And so it's interesting to watch kind of, this is an interesting conversation that you're right. And there's been a kind of adoption of it into kind of a, a kind of industry, but then at the same time, there's a small kind of another subculture has kind of emerged from that, just doing it off its own back. Right. Well, I think sort of like what, um, what Zeb was saying, like for a long time, one of the central aspects of something belonging to nerd culture was that there was something not forbidden, but fundamentally uncool about it. Um, so yeah, I don't want to pretend like I, you know, I played D and D for years and years, and it was a, it was a whole lot of fun. Um, I mean, video games and like I, I, Star Wars were my favorite movies when I was a kid. All the all these sorts of things. Like I certainly come from like that cultural background. But now it's been exploded out into not just the mainstream, you're right, Jonathan, but it's no longer this sort of uh, social death wish that it once was. So you, you have, you know, people just without any grace of social skills, you know, having weird obsessions online. You also have just very clever, normal, funny guys drawing comics online where, you know, if you wanted to be somewhat of a normal person in society – 20, 30 years ago, um, drawing cartoons for fun as a 35-year-old is probably a, a no-go. Um, and so, yeah, it, the fact that that is no longer um, sort of pariah side of nerddom is really no longer there. So it's there are people that I think have not acknowledged that, which I think is in part why they get so offended when um, they get criticisms of like the TV shows they like, even though, it, yeah, it's like the you know one of the most viewed or most viewed i have no idea tv show of all time by now i also i i think that another thing that's changed too is just that being kind of ridiculously childishly enthusiastic about things that are popular mm -hmm. has become more acceptable you know like mentioned star wars i mean everybody's favorite movie as a kid or whatever right. was star wars that's why star wars is like the most popular movie of all time every you know everybody in america saw that movie but there was a select group of people who, you know, I don't know, saw Empire Strikes Back 50 times in theaters or whatever. But now, again, the way that the market works is people have been encouraged to feel this way mm. about everything. And more, you know, it's now now where, you know, the normal person would say, yeah, I saw Empire Strikes Back. It was pretty cool. You know, and a nerd would say, oh, yeah, I waited in line for 10 hours to see it the night it came out. And then I saw it 49 more times. Now everybody says, oh, yeah, this show's out on Netflix. I spent my whole Saturday watching 15 episodes of it straight. I mean, that's that's just considered normal now. Mm -hmm. And it's encouraged the whole business model. Of these companies like Netflix that will release a whole show at once, you know, yeah. counts on the idea that people will do that. Right. Well, and it's interesting that like Netflix, um, like now when I log on to Netflix, like the first screen that comes up now, I didn't used to, it's like, who's watching Netflix so we can personalize this 
for you because you know god forbid that you have to share it with another person like spend two minutes sorting out um but like it really like you're right it really does encourage like what used to be sort of the the nerd identity of centering around you know certain consumption certain entertainment like that Netflix now says that is in fact normal and good. It's it's interesting in the in the heyday of well, what's seen as the heyday of nerd culture, which is like the eighties, like we we there was still a lot of industry then, or at least in the West, mm. there was still a lot of industrial work. And now these we've largely progressed into kind of consumer societies, largely, right. more than like proletarian societies in that way. And so there's an interesting shift, isn't there, from kind of like that kind of obsessive consumption being kind of an idiosyncratic activity, a kind of odd one, to be being mm. kind of the cultural norm um, in that kind of sh material shift in the, in the kind of basis of how the society functions. Even if you were to compare it like uh, with another thing that has overlapped with nerd culture a lot, like metal, right? Like metal comes out of like, um, I mean, of course the etymology is debated, but a lot of people would say that it comes out of like like British steel towns, you know, and that British steel, the nationalized industry was the name of that Judas Priest record. And it was kind of a gritty, you know, industrial working class thing. But now, you know, metal is for like people who want to buy like the like limited edition 200 mm. pressing like seven inch from, you know, one of 17 different extremely obscure, like Swedish black metal groups, you know, making like rock operas based on, uh, well, probably Game of Thrones, you know, <laughs> um, it's a weird thing. I mean, it's, it's interesting though that this story is, is not new. I mean, this is the same thing that happened with like, I mean, what you just said about uh, metal music, it's the same thing that happened with like blues, mm -hmm. like back in the sixties. Um, this story isn't new in that kind of you have this music that originates in kind of you know poor black communities, largely in the south, and then kind of the, mig the migration north into places like Chicago, and you kind of get these kind of working class music. Um, it's kind of adopted by like white British kids who just want to like piss off their parents. Um, it's a similar thing. Um, it's just kind of 20 years on, you have to take something else now. Right. Um, that that does remind me. Um... That, that comparison, that possibly the worst uh, piece I've ever read on the internet, uh, it was titled, Nerd is the New N-Word. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> no. I'm not making this up. And it, 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 it just came out within the past five years. Like this, this was a real thing. Um, I'll debate whether or not I want to pull that up in the links for this show or if that should just die in it whatever obscurity well, it was. I was thinking earlier in that like what you're saying about kind of it's no longer a pariah thing well the mm. new pariah nerd culture is like the anime Nazis on Twitter isn't it right. the new one right and so you know maybe maybe like you know just like they said like nerd is the n-word or everything to say like Nazi you know I've seen that said online actually I saw someone say that Nazi is the new n-word mm -hmm. like, it's just like you know um you, it, it's this bizarre kind of, I mean, par pariah status, yes, mm -hmm. but also kind of in these subcultures, sometimes there's a reason something is a pariah. I mean, <laughs> that's not a thing you yeah. always want to say, but sometimes something's pariah yeah. for a reason. And like anime Nazis, like, there's a reason. Yeah. <laughs> On a sort of unrelated note, Matthew, I've been wondering, what is it about 
you're writing yourself that makes you so good at making people upset. I, I see, you know, I, I will always see, you know, Tempest and Teacups on Twitter about the latest whatever, but you manage with your writing to really get extremely strong reactions, often for not particularly, so, I mean, sometimes strange and hard to understand takes. Like when I first encountered your writing, it was a bit hard for me to process sometimes like what you were saying, because I just wasn't familiar with like your style, that sort of thing. But you really make, a lot of people seem to get extremely upset. Why did they do that? Um, I think I, I think I do it on purpose. <laughs> I, I mean, I can only, I can only assume. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I, I kind of realized intuitively early on and now I wouldn't say consciously I make a point of it. It's it, the instincts that just, you know, are kind of buried very deep there. But mm. I think basically no matter what I'm writing, I almost always have something in there that is going to to piss off everybody other than other than you know maybe maybe there maybe there will be five people or maybe you know my daughter's godfather or something will say yes 100% I agree with you but like for example you know I'm a very hardline kind of traditionalist latin mass catholic you know but I go out of my way to uh, to defend pope francis mm -hmm. you know the the um you know the audience who's going to who's going to agree with that is so slim because either it's going to be you know my fellow trads hating me for defending francis or it's going to be you know big paid up eager francis fanboys who loathe the trentine mass and want to see it suppressed and i think even when it's not something as obvious as that i i just think that there's always something in there to twerk somebody well the part of, in your Game of Thrones essay that really cuts to close to the bone, I think, is when you leave behind the question of nerdiness and whether Game of Thrones is a well-done show from an artistic point of view and get into the morality of it, and you totally upend the liberal dogma that art is just art and there's no morality to it. You can just consume it and take it for what it is and enjoy it. And um, you assert that there is moral content and moral consequence of the content of art and entertainment. Um, can you say a little bit about your thoughts on that and how that works with a with a show like Game of Thrones? Sure. So I think um, one of the hallmarks of liberalism is this almost uh, naive optimism about the ability of uh, people just to be good, uh, you know, for their own sake, without any kind of inducement to it, other than a sort of cheerleading speech from like President Obama, you know, our kindergarten teacher in chief. And they think that, you know, you, you read the right things or you, uh, you watch the right TV shows or whatever, and it'll be good and good for you. And a kind of old fashioned liberalism would say like, yes, you, uh, you know, you, uh, read like, Arthur Miller or something, and it'll make you a, a good liberal who understands how to be compassionate and you can learn all these virtues that are just something that can make you better. Um, I am sort of suspicious of that, but I think that on the flip side, that, that if you acknowledge that, once you accept that art can be ennobling, and I think definitely that some art can be, you have to acknowledge that the opposite can be the case because otherwise it is just empty noise. If you think that, you know, 
you can uh, read this novel and it will make you a more humane, empathetic person, then you have to be able to accept that watching people get raped and flayed and uh, made the subject of jokes about bestiality week after week after week could do the opposite and really coarsen your sensibilities. I think that's interesting in that with that other like ubiquitous cultural medium that we were talking about earlier um, before you came on, Harry Potter, um, people will always say, oh, these will make you better, you know, because there's edif like almost, I mean, there's more face value edifying material there. When it comes to something like Game of Thrones, if you say this to someone, oh, moral, you start talking about morality, they'll go, oh, it's just entertainment. Um, and a sort of arbitrary line draw between what's just entertainment and what's edifying based on um, whether or not you can argue for it as edifying. Um, and if you can't, then it's just entertainment, um, which is a completely arbitrary like division. It doesn't make sense. So you're completely right there. Well, I think I mean, if, you know, the first kind of thought I had, especially sort of relevant to Game of Thrones, is going back to um, sort of a lot of uh, like second wave feminist stuff about the sex industry um, and especially pornography and whether, you know, there, whether, you know, the argument of it being a victimless crime, even in, you know, the context, context of a completely secular perspective, completely divorced from any, you know, understanding of sexuality, just enjoying, you know, women being exploited and degraded. And can, can you actually set this aside from like, you know, your wider ethics and how it motivates you and, and drives you in society? People really want to believe that, you know, your your personal consumption under, you know, whatever conditions is a morally neutral decision. And I mean, I think you're right that, it, that it's not. And I'm I'm inclined to believe that art can, in fact, make you better. Simply that, you know, re reading stories that give you good examples and inspire you to be to be like the, you know, the characters. And I mean, very simply, you know, try and, you know, follow the image of Christ like that. That is a very like straightforward. It, it's not just the literal instructive words and ethics that helps you focus and meditate on the teachings of Christ. It's the the stained glass windows, it's the the hymns, it's you know, all of the the way that, you know, art plays on your passions and emotions is what helps sort of inspire and drive you to be more attentive, more thoughtful um, about the lessons, the lessons being contained contained in them. So it absolutely can have morally positive effect on you. And so yes, then by contrast, then we have to recognize that if you are watching or listening to wicked stories, then yes, it, it is it is likely to have a you know an evil negative negative effect on you. Well, one of the stupidest. Um, rebuttals that I saw in quite a few places to the to Matthew's Game of Thrones piece was people saying like oh the Bible has rape and incest and barbarism Shakespeare had those things so why is Game of Thrones so bad when this stuff has been with us for so long and there's a lot of reasons that that's a really dumb response but the most obvious one to me right off the bat is that with a show like Game of Thrones Number one, act, like actual human beings, actors have been paid to act out these degrading things for spectacle, for entertainment. But I don't know how we separate the content from the material conditions of how it's made and what, what it really is. You know, when you're watching Game of Thrones, you're not really watching people get killed or get raped, but you're really watching people pretend to do those things and sometimes in pretty graphic detail that 
I think is unquestionably degrading. And then secondly, even if you're not seeing those things really happening, you're seeing what they might really look like in a way that hearing them talked about in Shakespeare or in the Bible, it's not being put in front of your face and you're not being made to gaze at it um, in, in detail and dwell with it in the same way. So I think it's just such a different kind of thing to be watching these terrible acts happening. Like art needs to tackle and deal with the the very barbaric side of human experience and human action and all the suffering that goes with it. But it doesn't have to fetishize it or glorify it. And that's what a show like Game of Thrones is doing that um, I think makes it just a completely different thing from real literature or especially obviously from scripture. The other thing too there is... Um... As Marcos was saying, just just like with pornography, there seems to be this real hesitation nowadays to talk about um, just the leaving aside to get any kind of criticism uh, from a Christian perspective, just the political economy of this. You know, if you actually look at the young women who go into pornography and many, many of the women who end up playing sort of extras and brothels and stuff in Game of Thrones actually... Um, do most of their work in pornography. Um, the typical profile for these women is that, you know, they come, they tend to come from very kind of lower middle class and under backgrounds. They don't have a lot of opportunities. They've usually been badly treated at home and they respond to some kind of ad on the internet and they go out to California, you know, age 18 or 19 and they work for a few years until, um, you know, after um, after a couple thousand cumulative hours of uh, being, you know, I mean, in many cases, you know, spit upon and beaten and having to act out, you know, rape fantasies and things like that. Eventually they hit age 24 or whatever, and then they're considered, you know, too old or too overweight or whatever. And then they're expected to just move on with their lives. And uh, they're trying to fill out an application for uh, walmart.com or something. And they're supposed to say, uh, answer, well, what work experience do you have? And these people are very widely discriminated against. And that's just one of the sickest things about our society is that we say that this is not obscene. This is uh, entertainment, uh, just like Sesame Street, uh, that anybody should be free to watch. But on the other hand, if someone has been involved in this, in the production of it, mm. then that person is beyond the pale uh, and should not even be allowed to uh, be a cashier mm -hmm. at a store. And I think I think the same thing, though, you know, with something like Game of Thrones, you know, you have to think about like actual women might not uh, be raped or whatever when this show is made but they are being forced to appear without clothes and simulations of extremely degrading situations. Mm -hmm. And again, do you think that, you know, the woman who appears not as the, you know, the, the queen who has, you know, body doubles for her nude scenes or whatever, but you know, the woman who plays the tavern girl that gets murdered with a crossbow or whatever, do you think she's going to go on to get like some starring role in the new Spider-Man or whatever? No, she's going to do a couple more uh, pornos or whatever, and then she's going to struggle to find a job at Walmart. 
That's so I had never really thought about, but I mean, you're absolutely right that uh, the woman who plays uh, Cersei, the queen, when she has the when she has like her big newts and everything, there was, there was a whole bunch of things, articles about that, that there was a body double for um, they basically put her head, you know, they edited her head onto or whatever. Um, but yeah, like the in a horrific, uh, you know, mirror of our very real society. Yeah, the the minor roles, the lowest paid, um, those who you know most needed the work were the ones who did not get that kind of you know personal protection. They in fact just got God knows who it was um, to just facelessly cover for uh, for the, the the big role, the big you know you know heading actress um, to sort of cover and protect her. While I was, yeah, I mean the it's the minor characters who are usually the most you know visually brutally exploited and if this is just art and that's not degrading then why in the world would she ever need a body double i mean i I, i'm i'm certain the response would be to hide behind a a personal choice she didn't want to do it and that's fine kind of thing and then the claim that we you know we we can't prove that but then why would she not murder murder victim number 86 uh did want to do this yeah there's um yeah exactly there's or the, yeah or the body double like the body double just happened to want to be naked with no head <laughs> right just have her body appear <laughs> aspirations yeah so it's, it's just about consent right. there's no coercion here there's no mm-hmm. underlying economic uh force applied it's just consent like i mean like you were saying matthew you had that moment of realization of what am i watching what what is this that i'm consuming for entertainment but you kind of, I think, you know, you got to kind of do that in the privacy of your own head. You, you pretty much got to face your shame when you publicly when you were ready to. Um, and reading that for the first time, I think, kind of hits people a lot because at least I think to them, feels just reading on the internet probably you know feels kind of public to them that they're being called out. So that's what you do on the internet is you call people out for their bad behavior. Well, that yeah, that was the extraordinary thing is that the tone of all the responses and not just the sort of anonymous people on reddit but even you know these columnists at salon and forbes really made it sound as if um oh they they felt as if they'd been attacked personally as if i had written you know just to them saying you know you are bad because you watched this and of course i didn't say anything like that i said that i decided that this was bad for me Mm -hmm. and uh gave a bunch of reasons. And so if you're having these pangs of conscience, I might be the occasion for them, but I don't think there was any, any moment in the piece when I said, you know, if you do, if you watch this, you know, you're a wicked person, mm-hmm. you know, at the very least, that would be a massive self own considering right. that I wound up to watching six seasons of it or whatever. <laughs> I think that's interesting in that um, the nature of the piece is that it, it's a piece about Game of Thrones. And so the nature of the piece is to make out in that the, the problem lies with the show, um, which in one way isn't wrong. Um, but in another way, if there's a problem, um, it's not with the show as an isolated thing, which doesn't really exist anyway. But it's with the kind of that the show emerges as a cop from a culture and forms a culture in a particular way and so there's a kind of um 
wider set there's a wider set of things that you're addressing and so if you're right it says something more than just about the show um which i think that i think it's linked into what you were saying before i think a lot of the a lot of the pushback i read the um the forbes article at least and and he and he was defensive over the the perceived attack on nerds as a whole and i think that again links to what you're saying about commodity fetishism and the kind of i think a lot of the, a lot of the time it's not merely about in that the argument back and forth can make it seem as if you're arguing just about Game of Thrones, and actually there's a wider set of issues going on behind it that are actually at, at, at stake. Yeah, and it was it was sort of funny, fitting in a way that it should be in an outlet like Forbes, where this kind of commodity fetishism <laughs> is defended, even though um, in the original version of the piece, and the guy eventually issued a sort of clarifying note, he initially tried to smear my objections to all this as being hysterically right wing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the really weird one when he said that like it was a subtle pro censorship piece, which like I don't based on your writing before, I don't think you're opposed to that necessarily. But like the piece to me didn't come across as saying anything in particular at all about what should or shouldn't be allowed to go about in public media, just about what was good or not. Um, I think there's that sense in which in a, in a society built entirely on a free choice, any judgment on which cultural artifacts are good or bad becomes perceived as kind of... Right. I mean, even, even Netflix doesn't feel like they're allowed to present you with shows that you might possibly not like. You know, anything is authoritarian. Even Even showing you suggesting that maybe you might want to watch um, Casablanca or something when what you really want to watch is uh, your favorite anime is, you know, a kind of quasi-Stalinist, you know, impingement on your um, your right to choose your entertainment. What, Matthew, what do you think about censorship? I know you kind of riled some of the dirtbag left last year by suggesting that maybe... <sighs> censorship has a place in modern society what do you think is the role of censorship at least under a proper just government yeah i mean i'm i'm totally in favor of it i think i think my my views on censorship i think i probably feel more strongly about with about the church making sure that um things that teach heretical doctrines or whatever especially about really fundamental issues like the trinity or christology or whatever are not not being published, not read by the faithful, especially not being read by seminarians. I think that that, which of course nerds cannot care less about, <laughs> is 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 really important. Um, you know, the church used to have, of course, the the index of prohibited books, and they they got rid of that in the '60s. And that's actually not something I'm opposed to, just in the sense that millions and millions of books are published every year. And the truth is, is that it would be hard to make an argument that more than, you know, a third of 1% of them really are worthy of anyone's time, you know? Uh, so I think having to go exhaustively through that, through all those, uh, is just too much work. But I do think, I do think that the, in a, a rightly ordered society, it would, it w would be possible to draw some much firmer lines than we have now. I mean, even half a century ago, you couldn't make and distribute, you know, hardcore pornography. Playboy or whatever at that time was just, I don't know, a picture of a woman not wearing a 
shirt or a bra or whatever. It's mm-hmm. a little bit more titillating but, than your average Renaissance painting. I think, and I think the thing is, is that even in our current regime, if we actually enforce the censorship laws, the, the obscenity laws that we actually have on the books, we would probably be okay. But, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but our obscenity laws are less than 100 years old, at, le- at least in, you know, in this country. That <laughs> Right, and a lot of ended up being handled actually um, voluntarily. I mean, the industry was totally on board with the idea that you, you shouldn't be showing sex or naked people or um, even, I mean, if you go back and read the original Hayes Code, there is some, there's some stuff in it that's actually really disgusting. Like, um, I think that interracial kissing right. was, was not allowed. But on the on the other hand, you know, things like, a film could not be made whose purpose was to glorify, you know, an immoral lifestyle. So even mm-hmm. like the gangster films of that era, the point of them is to show how being bad in the end will lead to your downfall. And, you know, being good will, uh, which of course does not always happen, unfortunately, at least not in this life. Uh, but that's, that's the lesson that we would hope people would be taking away from art. Not that, you know, killing lots of people uh, and robbing and stealing and so on are good. So I think, I think it would, it would be a good thing if we could return to having some kind of obscenity regime. I mean, a couple of years ago, there's the great Supreme court case where there was only one dissent from justice Alito, where it was a law about crush videos where these, it's a type of pornograph pornographic fetish where, obese women step on rabbits and bugs and things. And all, all of the Supreme court justices in 2007 or whatever it was said that this was, you know, art and only Samuel Alito said, no, this is a depraved form of entertainment with no redeeming social value. It's also illegal, uh, according to lots of existing. And that was going to, to be my, my, my question. Yeah. What, what, what was, what was going on here? That was not already prohibited by other laws then. It, you know, if you simulated crushing a live rabbit, but no rabbits were actually harmed. Um, I mean, <laughs> no rabbits were harmed. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, isn't that the... As, as long as, you know, in the actual real production, no one is, you know, provably harmed, no one is provably exploited, then the content itself is surely harmless. Right. And again, you have to feel like this poor woman, you know, given actual economic opportunity, would probably choose something a little bit more ennobling to do to earn her just wage than uh, than crushing fake rabbits to death while not wearing any clothes. Mm-hmm. You know, an interesting tidbit about the Hayes Code and the origin of that is that it came about with the cooperation and at the behest, in a lot of ways, of the Catholic Church. Because in the early days of the film industry in America, the Catholic Church would just tell all Catholics, you may not go to this movie that's coming out because it's immoral. <laughs> and so the, the studios would lose a quarter to a third of the potential audience for the films, which is why they cooperated with the Catholic Church and collaborated to put together this voluntary code. Mm. And so that came about because the church wielded a power that wasn't state power, but was a moral power that it doesn't have nor doesn't try to wield anymore you know i've never heard a priest say uh to the congregation don't watch game of thrones you're not allowed to imagine (laughs) imagine if a priest would just say that you know it it saved 
the more conscientious of us, the temptation of wondering whether or not we can morally watch it. But also, of course, it would raise uh, a big alarm in the in the secular world that the church is infantilizing or being patronizing to its faithful. But there's got to be somebody who's taking that role. If we, you know, if we, we can't just want the state to intervene, there has to be a moral authority before the state that is the the culture upon which that state authority stands. And the church and had that back in the 20s and 30s. Now, that's, that's gone. Now. I not didn't mean to interrupt you, but now isn't it supposed to be the parents until they're an adult, and now an adult is supposed to make their own decisions? Isn't that our our current understanding? I mean, that, that that's at least my understanding of what we're. I'm not saying it's right, but what we're taught. Well, you know, you would think that, but I'm not even sure that's the case because you think of all of these um, sort of preening, uh, you know, sessions of uh, that. Think about uh, banned books week every year, mm-hmm. and <laughs> I, I, I'm a librarian, so I'm all, well aware. Yeah, all the hysteria generated over the notion that some parent somewhere said, "Oh gosh, mm-hmm. this uh, this book about you know, like rape or about teenagers like cutting themselves with glass or whatever." I don't know if I want my kid reading this. The idea that any parent anywhere would ever possibly have any kid objecting would possibly object to their child reading any book ever is apparently just the worst possible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting at this point. I will say that, um, I'm jumping back a little bit, in that I think that you, you're right to say that, how to phrase this, I think that I'm not in favor of censorship because I don't think you can make, you can do this by fiat. I don't think you can, you can decide which books people are going to read and which people aren't by fiat, especially not now with the internet. I think that attempts to do so will merely just give police powers, which I'm suspicious of them having. Um, but that being said, um, I do find it interesting that culturally this idea should be so anathema. Um, so I was watching um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade the other day, and it's interesting that their portrayal of the Nazis, what's wrong with the Nazis? There are basically two things that are evil, make the Nazis evil, and those are that they burn books and that they're German. And apart from that, there's nothing discernibly wrong with Nazism. I mean, the, the marches are a bit weird, I guess, but like in Indiana Jones, the two real moral abominations that they burn books and they're German. Um, and so it's, it's interesting that like that's kind of the thing. Um, and this is something, interestingly, I mean, you, you commented that the dirtbag left really hated Matthew Walter's suggestion on that. But I have um, like... You know, I have like real Marxist-Leninist friends, you know, pro-Soviet, whatever. Who like they're like, yeah. I mean, some books should just be banned. That they're, they're not, they're not opposed to censorship. And so there are. This isn't. Um, there, there are ways of saying, just like you were saying before, there are ways of saying this are, are completely outside any kind of question of morality or whatever. Um, just in terms of secular politics, there are arguments, and you can make the same arguments in just that to form a society in a particular way. Sometimes it's it's better that um, certain texts are not widely available. Um, but I, again, I don't think it's healthy to do that by fiat, um, by kind of just, just stating that that's the case. Because I don't think that'll work, and I think that it'll give certain powers to stay apparatus that I don't think are healthy. But nonetheless, um, it is something worth saying that in, in society at large, like the suggestion that some works of art would be bad and shouldn't be read and, and widely um, is just it's something that people don't understand at all. Um, I think it's because they don't take 
this stuff seriously. It's seen as not real. It's not a real world. It's, you know, it's fake. But actually, it does make a difference. Um, I was just going to say, that's, I mean, that's one of the criticisms that I have of sort of dirtbag left and DSA types is that I think that there's a real sense in which a lot of them are just kind of LARPing. Um, because the idea that, that free speech is a first order good is a very yeah. liberal, very new idea. I mean, you don't, you don't find any support for this in, uh, in Marx, in, in Lenin, uh, well, yeah, certainly not, certainly not in Mao. I mean, if anything, the kind of like, kind of like comfortable, cozy, you know, novel reading, uh, kind of liking classical music and painting is sort of a very, uh, kind of bourgeois liberal Bloomsbury. Um, yeah, and they denounce this in other forms. Yeah, like right. when, when, I mean, when it comes to like free speech on campus, they they're, they're very good. They have the very clear state that no, this should not be. You shouldn't allow right. Nazis to speak freely on campus. And they'll say that very clearly. But if you suddenly said, well, maybe these books shouldn't be read by students, it would be a different matter. Well, I think they're still stuck in the the public private life split. That you you can have this private life that's completely cut off from your your public persona. That you can you know whenever you are engaging with other people you can be one thing and then you know in the privacy of your home uh your internet browser usage your bedroom whatever you can be something totally different and there's there's no connection between the two and i, I think that is one of the few areas where there really is a somewhat of a horseshoe theory is true that the further that you move away from sort of bland liberalism either direction the more that you get people recognizing that no like your actions and behaviors in your life are a holistic experience that what you do at any time does actually affect you and does actually <laughs> change who you are and, you know, define and motivate your your behavior elsewhere. There's a really great essay that the literary critic Stanley Fish wrote uh, called Why There's No Such Thing as Free Speech yeah. and That's yeah. a Good Thing, in which he, he basically says, look, there has actually never been such a thing as free speech the way that, you know, Banned Books Week uh, campaigners talk about it in this sort of uh, glib and vague manner. Every society that has ever existed has recognized that there are certain words or ideas or books or whatever that are just totally at odds with the organizing principles of that society. And those things have ever, always been beyond the pale. And one of the examples that he uses is the, um, you know, the essay by Milton, Aeropagitica, that we think of as like the, the cornerstone of, you know, modern liberal thinking about freedom of speech. You know, it's quoted on the walls of one of the big branches of the New York Public Library. But in it, there's the passage where Milton, after this um, sort of, you know, very hyperbolic apostrophe to the glories of free speech says, uh, I mean not tolerated popery nor irreligion because Milton is talking about his glorious Puritan Christian commonwealth. And of course, there's no room for uh, Catholicism or for atheism in the kind of society that he's proposing. So, of course, people can write or publish or think anything they want, except those things that uh, they should absolutely not be allowed to write or publish or think. And I think I think we see it now. We see this now. Um I mean, does anybody think, and this is another thing that Fish goes into in that great piece, is there anybody who really thinks that, for example, people who say that the Holocaust didn't happen, where do they deserve a platform? Is it ever, would it be okay for Random House to say, you know, we've done some market research, our analytics team has tapped into this, 
And actually, we realized that we could probably sell at least 75,000 copies of The Jews Made It Up by David Duke. <laughs> you know, and we think that there are some, uh, you know, he could go on uh, Breitbart Radio. There might even be somebody really late at night on Fox who would have him on. Uh, we really think that this would be a goer. You know, is there anybody who think that's okay? And if there's, and is there anybody who would be put out by the idea of uh, agents going in and just seizing and burning all those books? Once it got to the point of people seizing and burning books, you would get, I think, en enough of a strong response. I, I was just saying, well, you, you were gone for a bit. But yeah. I was just saying that the, eject the objection you'll come across, um, both from liberals and from the left, is that if you, if you is it, is it who's to stop this kind of argument being deployed against us? But of course, this is just what politics is, isn't it? Politics is about, right. in some form, it's a conflict, and you, and you have to fight your grounds. And so, and so, you're saying no. We think that these ideas have no space in a just society. Um, of course, they'll say that our ideas have no space in a just society, and they they'll try and use the same arguments against right. us. But that doesn't make the the whole set of arguments invalid. It just means that there's, there's a real conflict going on and someone has to win. Um, and I'd rather, we did, I say we, I'd rather, right. you know, I'd rather that the, the, argument, the ideas that I actually think are just one, rather than mm -hmm. just saying, oh, well, I won't advocate for anything. We'll just kind of leave a kind of free-floating sphere in neutral zone. Well, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, uh, liberalism is really the only ideology that's ever professed neutrality. Uh, I think that's probably right. Um, but I, I think that these arguments, um, in fact, I like, I bet you could, you could hear these arguments from varieties of other sources, you know, right and left, who didn't call themselves liberals normally. Um, well, they didn't think of themselves, but I mean, yeah, yeah. There, there's, we have to recognize that we are all still fundamentally liberal to some degree yeah. we're not we're, we can't escape this i mean we are just in a liberal society as true, hard true. as we might hard as we might try um, but liberalism is the only ideology that says that neutrality is a good thing right self-consciously says neutrality is what that, we're aiming for right which is which is why liberalism i mean which is why if you if you have a soul liberalism will seem so kind of gross to you because, and again, that's, that's like banned books week because you're saying that everything is as valuable and worth being out there as anything else. It's all just random, meaningless noise. Uh, you know, crush videos are, are just as good as the Bible, uh, because it's all just interchangeable units of entertainment. And so all you have to do is get your algorithm cal calibrated properly so that you get only the content you want and the next guy gets the content he wants. I, I personally don't understand how people can fail to be, they're not disgusted, at least kind of, you know, bored, bored by that. I, I think that that's, it's part of what you were saying earlier about commodity fetishism in that, um, you have a society entirely oriented around kind of these individual acts of will, you know, you kind of choose, um, and, and actually it's, it's best for, it's best for the profit motive, profit line, profit line, if you can eliminate any restriction on that as possible. Um, I mean, ideologically, there's no necess no necessary profit advantage for saying there's ideological neutrality necessarily, but there's definitely 
um, in advantage just for disavowing the argument entirely um, and just saying that, that that all that matters is an absolute free choice and abs you know um, and opinions become as commodities mm -hmm. um, and it's it's and this is where you get kind of online you get kind of people larping as you know um, monarchists or Maoists or whatever and you you have to and, and some of them probably really are but there's a lot of them you're just thinking well how much do you really believe this and it's basically just a kind of consumer choice that they've kind of they've made a decision and that's kind of larping in the negative sense so is it possible to have a divide between the content and the message um you know in the same way that in scripture we have many explicitly vile and terrible acts being committed that are also then you know not held up as either entertainment or morally neutral could a show have the same content as game of thrones but a different and more valuable lesson because i'm thinking of a not quite so explicit example um or outrageous content but uh i don't really like a lot of crime movies just because they always seem to be about like family men who explicitly steal cars um when they don't really need to or anything uh, but one of my favorite crime films is reservoir dogs which is an incredibly gory and horrible film like the people in it are terrible to each other it's incredibly violent and gruesome but it has i think a very accurate and realistic portrayal of the kind of people who would rob a bank and kill a number of people in the process um, you know, so at, at the end, you know, there's the like the Mexican standoff between the three of them remaining. And, you know, originally there's like 10, 12 of them, whatever. And now through a series of unfortunate events, they're down to three. So they have everything they stole. Or maybe it was a jewelry store, whatever it was that they robbed. In theory, they already have three or four times the amount of money each. And they could say, look, it doesn't matter what any of us did, who sold us out, anything like that. All three of us can walk away right now with way more than we ever thought we were going to make from this. But these are all incredibly paranoid and suspicious people because they know everyone who hangs out is just like them. And they absolutely cannot turn their backs on one another. They cannot walk away, even though it would be so much better for each of them than it was in the first place. And so they all wind up shooting each other and dying. We can cut that out if we don't want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, but I do like the film in that that it's, you know, when you have the people who are talented enough to steal like a hundred cars in the course of a night or whatever, that they're actually all like really nice, friendly people who trust each other and are very calm, great self-control, great family values, all of that. They just happen to have this past of stealing lots and lots of cars. Um, it's not that, you know, they stole one out of desperation, but they're like, you know, highly experienced adept thieves and i like reservoir dogs because th th this you know strikes me as a much more accurate representation of these these kind of people and game of thrones for all of its you don't know who's the bad guy you don't know who's the good guy after a couple of sort of pump fakes at the beginning you really get a sense of who are the bad who are the good at least the good guys in in the story you know the dragon lady is never going to die um <laughs> The emo kid who dies just comes back to life. The dwarf author stand-in is not going to die. It becomes very apparent. Like there, there are the characters that you are rooting for in it. It's just trying to, you know, put this gloss of you know there is no good and bad characters. And I, I like 
the story of Reservoir Dogs because it explicitly says they're all bad guys, which is why they all self-destruct and die at the end. Right. The <laughs> you know I nobody's ever pointed this out before, but I sometimes think uh, Quentin Tarantino ripped Reservoir Dogs off from Chaucer. Uh, the, so so the uh, one of his stories, uh, the Partner's Tale, uh, in the Canterbury Tales, is about these three young men who are sort of gluttons and drunkards uh, and blasphemers in a tavern who set off, say that they're going to go destroy death. And uh, they go out into the woods where death is supposed to be, and they meet this old man who talks about how he's been wandering the earth uh, for years and years but can never die. And he tells them that they can find where uh, they should be able to find death. But they get there, and instead they just find a bunch of gold. And they say, oh, yeah, this is great. We've got all this gold. And one of them says, okay, I'm going to go to town and uh, get some food and wine for us. And he goes into town and gets some wine, and he poisons it, thinking that he's going to come back and poison those two and have all the gold for himself. Meanwhile, the other two who are waiting with the gold say, when he gets here, we're going to kill him. And he comes back, and they drink the wine after having killed him. So he's lying there dead. They drink the wine, and they're all they're all just dead. Uh, yeah, that's and then all oh, right that the old that the old man that appears and claims them. Is that right, or is that kind of version I've heard later? No, he doesn't. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. I've, uh, I've got that. I've but, picked that up from somewhere but, else. But, but it's but it's yeah. but. Suddenly, the implication is that the old man is, in fact, mm-hmm. dead. Yeah. yeah. But, well, this is this is interesting in, the, in, in what you're saying about Reservoir Dogs. It's not an example, an analogous example in terms of gore, but um, I assume you guys have seen the TV show It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. in which when you're watching It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, you know that every single one of them is an awful person <laughs> and that none of them... Uh, there's no stretch of the imagination in which any single one of them is a model of moral imitation. And none of these are people that you would want to be or in the state that they are in the show, at least, want to spend time with. Um, I think that some of them, you can see them becoming good and happy people one day. But in the show, they're just miserable, messed up, and they're messing one another up. But that's the point. Um, I mean, there's there's a way of saying that. It's obviously just minim- There's a way of saying that in which you can say about almost anything and minimize the real damage this that kind of thing can do. But I think it's always Sunny is very self-conscious about how awful they all are. It's it's a show about what life is like for a group of people that society just doesn't give a fuck about, um, and what kind of habits that creates in people, and the kind of inescapability of it, the kind of inevitability of that kind of destruction. Um, and it's similar to what you were talking about with Reservoir Dogs. And that there is a way of, like, that there is a kind of art that kind of can depict that kind of real destructive tendency, that real depravity. But if you do it self-consciously, um, mm. and you do it, and you do it with a kind of moral sense and a political sense, I think, and it's always sunny. At least I haven't seen Reservoir Dogs. Um, then there's a way of doing that that's actually really good and really um, productive and good art in a real sense. The, at the end of the most recent season, or the most recent season I've watched anyway, um, Dennis. Um, so there's been a plot line where Dennis has accidentally fathered a child in South Dakota. Um, and he, in the episode, the last episode of that season, he tries to, the, 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 the mother turns up and tries to get him to like claim responsibility. And he tries to get out of it. He kind of fakes his own death and that sort of thing. It doesn't really work. And, and the episode ends where she kind of leaves for, back to Dakota. And they're all in the bar. 
and everybody else is dancing. It's kind of like a funny scene. But Dennis is just sat at the bar, just drinking. And he suddenly just gets up and says, no, I'm done. I'm done. I'm leaving. And he leaves. And that's the end of the season. He leaves and he, he decides he's going to be a father in South Dakota. Um, and you suddenly have this moment in which um, you think, so the thing with Dennis is that I can see Mac becoming a fundamentally good person one day. I can see Mac becoming happy one day. Dennis, throughout the season, I just can't see – I can't imagine a happy Dennis. I can't imagine right. a He is arguably the worst the – worst Yeah, thing. I think definitely. I definitely think so. But at that moment, um, I feel really complicated about that, end of, that, that ending for the season because on the one hand, here's a possibility that Dennis could become happy and fulfilled. There's a break from that kind of destructive tendency – but you know there's another season coming. And so either Dennis stays in South Dakota and he becomes happy and fulfilled, in which case, is it really it's always sunny if he's not there? Or Dennis goes back. And if Dennis goes back, then he just falls back into the habit. Well, that, that's kind of the, the sort of subtle underlying horror of any syndicated television is that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to call back to last to last week when we were talking about House, that the, the underlying message is he has, he has he says, like in every episode, people don't change. Yeah, and, and that, he can never escape. To keep, to keep syndicated television real, he cannot escape. He cannot actually have development. And he cannot change. Well, it's it's like the end of um, How I Met Your Mother, in which they need that kind of transformational moment in which she gets over Robin. But he, you know, but they also like the show doesn't work as a show. The whole point of the show is Ted and Robin, mm -hmm. and so they need him both to get over her. And have that kind of weird transformational moment and also to end up with her and that's part of what you're talking about that kind of inevitability um, to kind of serialized television um that creates real problems for having actual kind of moral narratives like narratives of real moral character either positively or negatively just because all you end up recreating is this kind of cycle of tragic inevitability which is fine for like one thing but if everything in your culture is like that uh, you end up with this kind of absolute cynicism, which ultimately ends up something like Game of Thrones, in which everything is just this kind of everything at the base of it is just power and sex, and there's nothing more to it than that. So I wonder, and we we, we should probably wrap up soon. Um, <laughs> but so I wonder, you know, even Game of Thrones and its kind of with all of its content, if it were reduced to if it had been like a single season, and the tragedy of the the fall of the um what's the family the good if the first first the good yeah. stark stark if yeah. if, it, if it just ended with you know ned is executed and the daughters are either you know in hiding or are you know being sold off like if it actually just been the tragedy of the fall of that house i think even the content of it would have been adult content but it would not have this it would not have that same sort of concern where it's just this perpetual cycle of suffering and suffering and exploitation for entertainment right no i think that the thinking back to that now yeah i mean the first season as like the tragedy of ned stark who's this kind of basically decent guy who uh always tries to do the right thing, even when he's in, put in a very complicated situation. You know, he's trying to serve this king who he knows is basically kind of an asshole. Uh, but he's trying to do his duty for his family and for his kingdom and for his friends. Um, and he's almost just, uh, he's, he's good, but he's not prudent. So he can't exercise judgment and say, you know what I should do is uh, lock up the queen right now instead of, letting her guards, you know, just kill me or whatever. You know, that, that wouldn't have been 
you know, world-class entertainment or something, but I don't think that it would be as depraved as the later seasons or whatever. By the time we get on to season three or whatever, it's just like the boy king just raping somebody different every week in his bedroom, you know, and that's half the episode. I, I don't think that there was as much of that early on. And I think, again, because of the serial nature of it, they just have to kind of come up with horrors of the week or whatever. They can't just write this kind of succinct tragedy. Mm-hmm. And that's something that people talk about when they talk about horror as well, don't they? And that kind of, yeah, in that every new horror film has to be shocking in a new way. But after a while, what can you do? You know, it's all just the same. That's what people say about horror. And I guess you could say the same thing in that, like, after so many weeks of rape and violence, what, do you, what, what else are you going to do? Well, uh, Jonathan, Matthew, Bo, thank you so much um, for joining us. Do you have any? Do you have any last closing closing thoughts for us? Um, just again, you know, in response uh, to some of my critics, I think I should quote Holy Writ: "The words of the prophet Drill." <laughs> the wise man bowed his head solemnly and spoke. There's actually zero difference between good things and bad things, you imbecile, you moron. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well done, Matthew. Thank you. Right. Thanks for coming on Wayward. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much. Man. Thank you so much. Jonathan, yeah. do you have any, any closing thoughts for us? Oh, do I have any closing thoughts? No, but I don't know. Read good books and watch better television. I don't know. I don't know. Nothing to add. None of it matters. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming back on right. this week. It was a lot of fun. All right. Good night, guys. Thank yeah. you both. Good, good, good night.
感。